one of the worst things about the character of contemporary partisanship is that because everything has to be politicized, things just sort of fall on one side or the other of our politics. And people in one party feel like they have to be against something because people in the other have made it their big issue. Um, and this certainly happened with family issues. I mean, the idea that to talk about providing support for families is to take a stark, polarized partisan position is, I think, bizarre. We can certainly argue about how to support families, and I think there may be just some distinctly left or right ways of thinking about that. But the notion that there ought to be a role for society as a whole to provide support for family formation and for family durability, um, it seems to me, should be uncontroversial. Um, it certainly is controversial. And, you know, it, it's just it, the, the character of this moment is that essentially everything is controversial. I mean, you can't take any position without it being identified as, uh, in one sense or another, a rejection of the opposite party. Um, I think family is the foundation of society. That, uh, and and that's, a, that, that's, not, um, th that's not because of our kind of society in particular. It's because of what it is to be a human being. Um, no, yeah, that, no, that feels fairly universal. Yeah, that, that I mean, that, you know, human beings that. are never born alone. They're always born in families. And some one way or another, that's how we're formed to be what we become. This week on Forward, founding editor of National Affairs Magazine and director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, author of five books, Yuval Levin joins us on Forward this week. It is my pleasure to welcome to Forward one of the smartest guys around in terms of how to fix this world of ours, the head of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the founding editor of National Affairs Magazine. Very fancy stuff. Yuval Levin. Yuval, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. You've written five books, I believe. You're a prolific thinker. And one of the most prominent intellectuals among what's called the reform conservative movement. Now, uh, you and I have spoken before and you just struck me as like an eminently reasonable guy. How does one become a prominent conservative intellectual? Like what the heck is that path? <laughs> <laughs> I ask myself all the time. Um, it's a good question. There is no path. There's no path. I mean, I would say that um, the work I do it, 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 what, what's distinct about it, if anything, is that it is kind of in the intersection of theory and practice. Uh, my education is really in political philosophy. I have a PhD from the University of Chicago that's really in political theory. But I've spent a lot of time working in public policy. Um, I worked for members of Congress. I worked for uh, President of the United States, for George W. Bush, as a White House staffer. Um, I've worked a lot on, on public policy questions on the whole range of domestic issues. And in a sense, it's the fact that I tend to see the policy questions in light of the underlying theory questions and vice versa that sometimes occasionally gives me something to say that other people don't see or don't think. And I would say that's been 
the distinct character of the sort of work I do. But I worked in government um, after graduate school for a decade or so, and then into the think tank world. And um, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know what intellectual means exactly as a practical matter. But um, I, I, the, the the work I've tried to do is try to help people think about the the rush of events in terms of deeper questions. And I guess that's one thing that intellectually minded people engaged in politics try to do. So you've been a part of, let's say, broadly speaking, the Republican Party or the conservative thought movement for a number of years. And you relatively famously penned an essay in this anti-Trump, never Trump kind of yeah. Uh, milieu. <laughs> it, yep. it was like a, 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 like a bunch of conservative intellectuals were like, hey, this is totally not the guy, not what we're about. Was that a difficult choice for you? No, by that point, it really was not. So this was in a, a special issue of National Review um, at the very beginning of 2016. So at the beginning of the primary uh, process, and the theme of the issue was really, um, in, in a sense, why Donald Trump is not a conservative and why conservatives should not support him. Um, I certainly think that's a very easy case to make. Donald Trump was not a conservative. He was uh, fundamentally hostile to American institutions, and conservatives are fundamentally protective of those. And that was the essence of the case I made and, and a case I continue to make in a variety of ways throughout his presidency and since then. I am a conservative, and it is because I'm a conservative that I that I rejected Donald Trump and that I thought he was not fit to be president. Um, and that certainly has always remained my view. You know, it was a challenging time within the right because obviously that was a very divisive question for the entire period of his presidency, and it remains so in some ways. Um, I think in some ways it divided people whose top priority was to defeat the Democrats from people whose top priority it was to advance a certain kind of vision of American life. Um, and, you know, maybe that's a little unfair to put it that way. And, and uh, you know, politics often involves uh, hard choices. But for me, the view that Donald Trump should not be president was not a hard choice and not a hard case to make. So you made that case. Um, did you experience a lot of hostility or blowback? Uh, and there were some people that made that case who then recanted a little bit later because yeah. that case was being made in, in the beginning of 2016 when Trump was not president. He then became president, which uh, warmed a lot of people up to him, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there certainly were. I mean, if you look at that issue of National Review, some of those people who wrote those pieces did change their minds. Uh, certainly not everybody, but some did. Um yeah, I mean, there was blowback. I mean, look, to, to work in and around politics, as you know much better than I do, um, is not only to make friends, but also to make adversaries. And uh, a lot of what you have to say gets criticized. And so there was certainly a lot of criticism around uh, critiques of Trump within the right. Um, I thought that what happened, everything that happened after that issue came out, to me, only confirmed my concerns that uh, Trump yep. was not fit to be president and that in a particular way that he was not suited to thinking about the responsibilities of that job yeah, it, it, and that that job is all responsibilities. Um, and so that inability is ultimately an unfitness. Um, certainly that remained a, a divisive view on the right. In some ways, it still remains a divisive view on the right. But, um, you know, in the world that I that I work in, the, of kind of conservative writers and thinkers, um, 
there were a lot of people who shared that view. It was by no means uh, a, a, a notion that isolated me, um, but not everybody shared it by any means. And um, the fight continues. Let me first applaud you on a personal level for your integrity and conviction uh, and courage, um, because I'd imagine there were a lot of people that might have thought that but wouldn't have put pen to paper, wouldn't have put their names out there. And then, as you said, some of them changed their minds when it was a little bit more politically expedient. You know, if I can just say that there were there were people for whom that really did take courage, especially people in our politics who faced voters, um, which I don't have to do. Um, and so for me, you know, if I don't express my actual opinion, then it's hard to to imagine what purpose my work would have. And it, it, it didn't take real courage, not really. Um, there were certainly plenty of people who who took much more courage than I required in order to stand for principle over this period. And uh, I, I admire them. My, you know, my job is to express my own opinion. So um, I, I don't consider it courage. I just think that's 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 the very minimum I could do. Well, unfortunately, doing your job in the face of adversity is not something that everyone chooses. So really, again, um, my my personal thanks, and I, I'm imagining that other people would join me in that. I liked how you just defined conservatism. You said conservatives defend institutions. Uh, and you wrote a book um, that makes the case uh, called A Time to Build um, around investing in American institutions First, how do you define an institution as independent from, let's say, an organization? Yeah, thank you. I think it's a very important question, and it's certainly important for thinking about what conservatives are for, but it's important in general for thinking about the kinds of challenges we face in our country now. A lot of those challenges seem like dissolution, like breakdown, um, and it's hard to understand them in individualistic terms. Uh, if we're just individuals trying to somehow connect with one another, uh, then it would be hard to see how we would simultaneously be experiencing the kinds of intense political divisions we see, the sort of alienation that people feel in their own lives, the increases in, uh, in suicide rates that we've seen, the opioid epidemic. I think all these things are connected. And yes. that they're connected around a breakdown of institutions. Now, the term institution, as you suggest, is very broad and capacious. There are a lot of kind of academic definitions of it. But for, for, for the purpose of this kind of conversation about the condition of our society, I think of institutions as the, the, the durable forms of our common life. They are the shapes, the structures of what people do together. So some institutions are organizations. They have a real kind of corporate form, uh, a company, a university, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a civic association, a hospital. But some institutions are durable forms of a different kind. Maybe they're shaped by laws or by norms, but without that kind of corporate structure, the family is the first and foremost institution of any society. You could talk about a particular tradition or profession as an institution. The rule of law is an institution. That they're durable is one essential fact about them. So an institution keeps its shape over time, and so it shapes human relationships in that arena of life. But most important, as I think about it, is and most distinct about an institution is that it's a form in the deepest sense, a structure, a contour, a shape that organizes common action. And so an institution is a social form. It's not just a bunch of people. It's a bunch of people who are ordered together to achieve a common purpose, pursue a common goal. And that ordering together gives each of them a place in relation to the others and in relation to what they want to do together. 
and that means also that institutions by their nature are formative of us. They not only shape our interactions with one another, they shape us, they shape our character, our habits, our expectations, so that there's, there's such a human type in the world as you know, an accountant or a lawyer. Um, there's such a human type in the world as a mother or, uh, or, or, or a Catholic. And that has to do very much with institutional formation. Um, and a lot of the breakdowns we find are breakdowns in that kind of formation. When institutions fail to form people properly, we find that we can't connect, we don't belong, we feel isolated and alienated. And for that reason, I think in this moment, it's really important to think about our social situation in terms of institutions. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So the institution that you mentioned uh, that I, that pops to mind for me is family. Um, and and I, I recently wrote an op-ed about the struggles among boys and men that are unfortunately now kind of self-propagating, where if you have men who are failing, then you have lower rates of family formation. Um, you have kids who are being born to single moms. I think it's up to over 40% in the U.S. now. There are adverse outcomes among boys in particular who are brought up in, in those uh, types of environments. Um, so I, I'm, and I'm a, I don't know if, uh, about your personal situation. I, I'm a dad myself. So I've too. got, uh, yes. Uh, how old are your kids? My kids are nine and 11. Wow. I've got a nine year old and a six year old. Uh, and I, I have said to people, Yuval, I never would have even considered running for president if not for my experiences as a parent, mm. where when our first son was born, uh, he was autistic. We did not know that. Uh, it was a very, very difficult baby uh, and toddler. Uh, and the strain on the family was uh, extraordinary. Um, and I remember thinking I have no idea how people could get through this alone uh, because uh, in our case, uh, you know, it was my wife, Evelyn, and I. Um, and I, I ran for president because I thought I might be able to help the situation for people who are struggling Uh at that level, like at home, uh, in, um, with the family, 
Um, and, and so that this is to me uh, like a building block, as you suggest, there's no more yeah. important institution. Um, and I proposed something that um, I took a little bit of heat for, but mainly people liked. I said, hey, I think we should just pay for marriage counseling for anyone who wants it. Like if you're struggling in a relationship and you want to have someone uh, help you with your relationship with your uh, partner, that's a social win. Like if you stay together, it's a win. <laughs> you know, like I could do the math on it if you wanted to, but um, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, that's like the the first institution I think of. And for whatever reason, um, we're in a strange time where I think if you say something about pro family, um, like that, that gets freighted politically in certain ways. One of the worst things about the character of contemporary partisanship is that because everything has to be politicized. Things just sort of fall on one side or the other of our politics, and people in one party feel like they have to be against something because people in the other have made it their big issue. Um, and this certainly happened with family issues. I mean, the, the idea that to talk about providing support for families is to take a stark, polarized partisan position is, I think, bizarre. We can certainly argue about how to support families, and I think there may be just some distinctly left or right ways of thinking about that. But the notion that there ought to be a role for society as a whole to provide support for family formation and for family durability, um, it seems to me, should be uncontroversial. Um, it certainly is controversial. And, you know, it, it's just it, it, the, the character of this moment is that essentially everything is controversial. I mean, you can't take any position without it being identified as uh, in one sense or another, a rejection of the opposite party. Um, I think family is the foundation of society. That uh, and and that's a, that that's not um, th that's not because of our kind of society in particular. It's because of what it is to be a human being. Um, no, yeah, that, no, that feels fairly universal. Yeah, that, I mean, that that, you know, like human that. beings are never born alone. They're always born in families, and some one way or another, that's how we're formed to be what we become. So you've been a, a part of uh, politics and public life in some form for, uh, gosh, not to date you, but, you know, like going on a couple of decades. Uh, and, and during that time, there's been a real erosion, maybe even collapse of institutional trust. Yeah. Um, how do you see that decline as tied to this polarization that you're describing, which I, I'm sure you'd agree has gotten much, much worse in recent years? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I there's no question that we're living through a period of declining, even collapsing public confidence in, in institutions. That much is, uh, it's almost a cliche by now to say so, and the, and the data behind it is very, very strong, decades of, uh, of public opinion research. It's not just political institutions. Um, it's, it's every kind of institution from, from religion to, uh, to big business, to banks, to the media, to universities, and certainly the institutions of our government, just have less of the public's confidence now than they used to. Um, you know, there are a variety of reasons why that happens. I mean, in some ways it is overdetermined, but there's some reasons that are especially distinct to our time. I mean, I think, you know, one kind of universal reason for mistrust is corruption. And there's plenty of corruption in our time, but there's plenty of corruption in every time. It doesn't quite explain the trajectory. Um, similarly, incompetence, you know, we, sometimes you don't trust an institution just because it doesn't do its job very well. And there are always reasons for that kind of mistrust. But I think one thing that's distinct in our time is a sense that our institutions are not forming trustworthy people. 
That is, as I talked about institutions before, you think of them as shaping a certain kind of human type. And oftentimes, the reason you trust that human type has to do with boundaries that are set by the institution, right? I trust my accountant, not so much because she just knows all the tax laws, I hope she does, but because there are things an accountant would never do, would never sign her name to. And in that, and for that reason, I can trust what she does do. Um, you could say that about a lot of professionals in particular, but a lot of people in general who are shaped by institutions, it's the constraint that gives us trust. There are things a journalist who is really a journalist wouldn't say without checking. There are things a scientist would not claim without evidence. You should check on that journalism one. Uh, I know, I know. Who's a journalist, right? <laughs> if we were to trust institutions, if we were to trust journalists, if we can think back to a time when we might have, that would have been the reason why. And I think in our time, and you know, as, as what you say about journalists suggests, in our time, we've lost the sense that people are actually constrained by these institutional boundaries. And instead, we have a sense that people use the institutions that they're part of as, as platforms for themselves. You can see it in journalism. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of political journalists now, if you check in on Twitter right now, you'd find some elite political journalists just building their own brand not acting within an institution, within layers of editing and, and verification, but standing on top of institutions. I'm a New York Times reporter, and so you should care what I think, and acting as individuals, um, liberated from those kinds of constraints. Those people become very hard to trust. Um, and wow. a, a lot of our institutions now essentially elevate individuals that way, rather than constraining them in a way that makes them trustworthy. That's true in the media, it's true in the academy, it's true in politics. A lot of people now run for Congress, not to be the human type that is a legislator, but to build a personal following, to build their brand, to build their social media following, or to get a better time slot on cable news. And what they're doing is not recognizably institutional, um, and therefore is very hard to trust. I think a lot of our loss of trust has had to do with that. And it's connected, to return to your question, it's connected very much to partisan divisions and polarization, because a lot of what people do with that, with that prominence that they get by standing on top of institutions as platforms is participate in the culture war. And so, um, you know, being a prominent pastor means you get to show that you are part of this team and not that team. Being a prominent professor means that you have a platform for uh, expressing a, a, a affinity and solidarity with your own team in the culture war. Obviously, it happens in the media. Obviously, it happens in corporate America and in politics. And so in that sense, I think the weakening of institutional constraints has a huge amount to do with the intensification of polarization and partisan animosity in, in this century. Well, you're like one of these old school anti-corruption institutionalists where you're like, hey, you know, you're representing this uh, very important uh, organization or august body, so you should never be beating your chest in that way. I can see why you didn't like Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, here's a guy who was not shaped by any of the institutions that normally shape our presidents, right? He's the first president we ever had who had not held any public office before of any kind. Um, and I resemble that, but continue. <laughs> well, no, but part of what that means is that he doesn't take he doesn't take his cues from those formative political institutions. And I think that that has expressed itself in everything that he had done before. He had basically been a performer. 
Um, and he wanted to be president to be a performer on a bigger stage. And that's what he was. And, you know, I, I, I think that ultimately we, we always have to be, in order to have any kind of integrity in life, we have to ask ourselves, given the role that I have here, how should I behave? And maybe that role is I'm somebody's father or I'm a professional or I'm a neighbor or a friend. Um, given that, how should I behave in this situation? That's what, a, that's what a person with integrity asks themselves. And I think that this kind of deformation of our institutions that encourages people to just think of themselves as performers takes away the incentive to ask that question. And the result is just a, a, a lot of irresponsibility. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Uh, so I have a question for you that you can uh, go back in, in your memory banks. What did you think of the Andrew Yang presidential campaign back in the day? And I share this because... Uh, um, I have written about, I don't know if you've read it, but I, I've written about how the campaign itself uh, forced me to become something of a performer because I needed to survive in an ecosystem where I didn't have a lot of natural advantages. Uh, and so uh, I would uh, let people in to a certain degree. People got excited about the campaign because they had a sense of me. There were certainly times when I didn't do things that would be conventionally presidential, um, uh, and I'll confess to you as well that when I was starting my campaign, it was so difficult and painful because I would address small groups of people who were there as a courtesy to be like, all right, let, let's see what this guy has to say. And then I would act like I kind of imagined a presidential candidate was supposed to act. And the whole thing was a bit of a dud, uh, honestly. <laughs> and my team was like, whoa, we got to freaking work on this. Uh, and as time passed, I became more uh, comfortable, but also more dynamic, more personable. I would swear, as an example, 
Um, and that, that's something that's pretty natural for me because mm-hmm. uh, I uh, swear a lot. <laughs> um, now, now, some people would look at that and say like, oh, I really like this guy because it's very, very genuine. And other people are like, oh, look at this. This guy is totally non-serious. So I, I don't know if you were keeping up with me in the presidential campaign back then, but I, I'm, I'm just throwing this out um, as a question because I'm curious really more than anything well, else. Well, look, I, I think that what distinguishes performative politics from substantive politics has to do with how people understand the goal of what they're engaged in. And on that front, I don't think that what you were doing was fundamentally performative. It was about it was about solving public problems. Whereas if you think about some of the politicians who most drive you crazy on, on either party, it's Oh my gosh, like, I can think of so many where you can tell they don't actually think the things they're saying. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the performance is the point. They're trying to channel a certain kind of uh, frustration or resentment on the part of the voters they're trying to reach. And they want to show that they express the same view. They're not speaking to it. They're not, they're not trying to assuage it. They're not trying to answer it. They're not trying to address the underlying problem. They're trying to channel the frustration um, and the sentiment. And oftentimes that's a negative sentiment naturally. And so um, they end up being basically kind of negative performers. Um, you know, I, I think Donald Trump was the epitome of that, but he's not by any means the only person who operates that way, who fundamentally thinks of himself as a performer in the public arena. I do think that's very different from trying to adjust yourself to the demands of the media environment um, and you know, in order to get heard. The question is to get heard saying what? And if the answer to that has to do with how to d- deploy government in ways that might address public problems, then I think that's what a politician ought to be doing. If the answer is to have a particularly prominent uh, venue and platform um, from which to participate in the circus of our culture war, then I don't think that's an appropriate use of politics. And, you know, a lot of what happens in our public life now looks like the latter. I mean, I, I in particular, worry in, on that respect about Congress. I, I think Congress needs to be at the center of our system of government, and it needs to be at the center as a venue for accommodation and bargaining. That's the purpose of the institution. And it's become instead a platform for commentary, um, which both takes itself out of the center and doesn't do the work of engagement and accommodation and bargaining. And, you know, I think that a lot of the problems we face now in our politics begin from that uh, dysfunction. We can get into some of your ideas around reforming Congress right now. Uh, I was going to head there eventually, but we might as well well, uh, uh, well touch on it directly since mm-hmm. you raised it. Uh, you think that Congress potentially should be a whole lot bigger than it is now. Uh, explain. Yeah, I mean, the, my, my attitude about Congress, my ideas about how to change Congress are all rooted in this problem I've just described, which is that, in essence, the purpose of the institution is to address public problems through bargaining and accommodation, to resolve public differences peacefully by uh, by allowing people with different views to negotiate. We, we can only cut happen all members Congress. of Congress off from cable TV, but continue. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. I mean, one of the ideas I have for Congress is basically to end the, the televising of committee hearings, um, which I think has done terrible damage to Congress. Um, and the reason is because you can't, you can't talk. You can't negotiate. You can't bargain. There's no such thing as bargaining in public. If you're watching bargaining in public, you're watching a show. 
and the real work will happen somewhere else. And that's what's happened to Congress, is most of what happens is a show. If you, if you, if you attend a hearing, you're basically looking at people who are recording YouTube videos to use later. They're not talking to each other at all. And when work has to get done, it gets done in the leaders' offices, you know, at midnight before a government shutdown. And then everybody's frustrated by that. But where else are they supposed to do it? Um, I think that kind of thinking about the meaning of transparency and the reach of it is is one way to think about reforming Congress. As you say, I also think there's room for expanding the House of Representatives. Um, the House is supposed to be the most representative of the institutions of our constitutional system. Um, it's directly elected every two years. Members are constantly answerable to, to the people. And part of the logic of it originally was that members would be relatively close to their constituents. And so originally, every member of the House represented about 30,000 people. Um, and the idea was the House would grow after every census so that that number was kept in some check. And it did grow after every census from 1790 until 1910. And then after the 1910 census, it, there's some dispute among political scientists about exactly why. My sense of the evidence is that this happened because continuing to grow the House would have made the House more and more Catholic, given the patterns of immigration after 1910. But whatever the reason, uh, Congress decided to stop growing the House. Um, and rather than grow with every census, they began to reapportion, to divide this, the existing number of seats, 435 seats in the House, um, in different mm, ways. Larger on, and larger population. <laughs> exactly. So at this point, every member of the House represents uh, more than three quarters of a million people, almost 800,000 people. Um, that means that some House members represent more people than senators do. And it also means that it is very hard for representation to happen in the way that it was originally conceived. Now, I don't think we can get back to 30,000. That would mean the House would have to be you know, 3,000 members or so. And that's the, you have to balance this against the need for the House to be a venue for negotiation, a face-to-face -face institution. But what I would propose is that if the House had kept growing after 1910 in the way it had before, there would now be about 150 more members than there are. And so I think by, by statute, you don't need to change the Constitution for this, Congress should grow the House of Representatives by 150 members and then keep growing after every census, um, as it did in the first uh, 120 years of the Republic. I think it, that would improve representation. It would also help to balance the Electoral College some, because each state's Electoral College votes are a function of that state, of the size of that state's uh, congressional delegation. So there'd be a little bit less of an imbalance between large and small states. Um, and I tend to think that kind of change would be a shot in the arm for other changes. Bringing in 150 new members all at once would mean members would think about what else needs to change. Maybe we need to rethink the budget process, the committee system. There are all kinds of changes now that need to change the incentives that members face so that the incentive is not to be a performer on a stage, but to be a legislator in, in negotiation with others. Um, there's no silver bullet for getting there, but I think there are a series of reforms that could gradually make the difference. You'd also need some electoral reforms, and those are harder to come by. But we have to think about the Congress in terms of institutional incentives. If we want people to behave better, we've got to change the, 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 the motives that drive them to behave the way they do now.
would you agree that we should also be examining uh, multi-member districts so that you have different points of view that that uh, are represented? Yeah, I, I think there's room to experiment with changes in how members, especially members of the House, are elected. Um, multi-member districts, I, I mean, in a sense, the logic behind multi-member districts, but also behind various forms of ranked choice voting, is to allow for more of a fine-grained representation in Congress so that there aren't just two categories of people in America, Republicans and Democrats. There are all kinds of people in America. And we do have a two-party system, but within that two-party system, you could have a lot more constructive factionalism where there are more uh, urban Republicans, there are more rural Democrats, there are more people with a, a, a broader variety of views. And I think that part of the reason we don't see that now has to do with electoral reforms that were undertaken in the 1970s, basically the creation of party primaries. Um, which put a lot of power over candidate selection in the hands of very small groups of party activists. Those tend to be, they tend to be the most <laughs> ideologically uh, divided of the, of the voters, of the electorate. And therefore, the parties just look like those people. Those are the people who get nominated. I think we, look, we need to look for ways to allow a greater diversity of views to be represented within both party coalitions. Uh, to me, that points toward ranked choice voting. I, I think it's also very worthwhile to experiment with multi-member districts. We used to have multi-member districts in the House. That wouldn't be a, an, a really an innovation for American politics. Um, it's been illegal uh, since the 1960s. And again, it's a matter of passing a law um, and allowing states to experiment with it. One concern I do have about uh, multi-member districts is just that there's less there's less personal accountability. Within one district, a member could say, well, talk to the other member from this district because she's more like you. Um, and I, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I think we want to be careful about making sure that every constituent has someone whose job it is to really represent them in Congress. But I think it's worth the experiment because there clearly need to be changes in how the in the kind of people who, who choose to run for office, who decide that this is for them. And some of that has got to involve changes in the kind of election of election rules that now uh, create all the incentives. Ranked choice voting, you know, creates an, an incentive for people to try to be everybody's second choice. And I think that's a very healthy way to think about how to get more people engaged and a different kind of personality for our politics. You know, one, one thing I love about the way you approach these issues, uh, Yuval, is you're, you're a modernizer or a strengthener at heart. You look up and say, wait a minute. Uh, why did you stop growing at 1910? Uh, you know, it would be extraordinarily difficult for one human to represent 800,000 uh, Americans. Like 30,000 is like a very large college campus. <laughs> 800,000 is a... You know, uh, like a medium-sized city or a large yep. city even. Uh, the fact that you're thinking about ways for these institutions to advance and evolve, I think, really is uh, the best impulse. Uh, and certainly you and I uh, are aligned on that. Uh, you wrote an essay recently that I thought was very dark and difficult, but also extraordinarily accurate, um, wh where you talked about how fewer bad things are happening because fewer things are happening. <laughs> where, where, where that, that You could look up and say, well, you know, uh, fewer teenage pregnancies. Uh, well, and that's good. Um, but it's also because people are dating less, interacting less, staying at home more. Same thing with drunk driving fatalities going down. But it turns out that just no one's driving because everyone's staying at home. Uh, and, and you see institutions as 
a force for moderation, uh, which is one reason you like them, or formation, as you say. Uh, uh, and uh, now the, there's like a different issue, which is that um, instead of having this raging impulse that then needs moderation, it's like the impulse isn't even there. Like people are yeah. defeated before they even decide to leave the home, uh, which, by the way, is something I'm also very, very concerned about. Um, and you take it a step further where you talk about the culture uh, as it stands right now. It instills a kind of risk aversion because of the performative aspects of expression replacing action, which I also agree with. Um, I'd, I'd love to ha- to discuss um, first, like the, these points of the of uh, your mm-hmm. essay, and then what you think can or should be done. Well, thank you very much. I, I, first of all, I, I I really like the way you put the point that is, that thinking about improving or strengthening our society means thinking about modernizing and reinforcing our institutions. I think it's very important not to th- not to look backward when we think about social change. And I'm a conservative. I think we have a lot to learn from our past as a society, but time never moves backward. And so the question for us when it comes to how do we improve things is always how do we go from here to a better working set of institutions or a better working society? And th- there's a very, very powerful tendency in our culture now to nostalgia. It's actually true on both the left and the right to think about kind of late 20th century, mid 20th century. Which version of the past do you prefer, Yuval? (laughs) Exactly. Do you go back to the economy of the 50s, which oddly the left wants to do, or do you go back to the culture of the 50s, which the right wants to do? I don't think you can go back to either of those. So let's think about where we want to go forward to. Um, I, you know, frankly, in part, this is probably because so many of our political leaders were born in the 1940s, um, are going to turn 80 in the 2020s. And it is odd for a country to choose to be governed by such a, an elderly uh, class of people. I think the generational change that's coming is going to force us to think about a new set of problems. And this, this essay that you point to from uh, just a, a month or so ago, um, tried to think about social breakdown in, in these terms, where, as you say, we're, we're used to thinking about social breakdown as disorder, as an excess of energy, people jumping in too fast, having kids too soon, having sex too soon. Uh, rushing into life. And that certainly is one important driver of social breakdown and social trouble. But what stands out about the, the, the statistics about family formation and, uh, and other social indicators lately is that there's an even more powerful or more fundamental force, which is a kind of withdrawal from society, a sort of alienation or, or loss of confidence and loss of energy that looks like people not getting going rather than getting going too hard, too fast, um, and yep. pushing too soon. And that, that at first can look like, as you say, like good news. Like divorce rates are really low. Uh, the teen pregnancy rate is extremely low. Um, abortion rates have been falling now for 20 years. These are good things. But when you look into them, you realize that divorce rates are very low because marriage rates are even lower. Um, and, uh, you know, there are fewer abortions because there are fewer pregnancies, much fewer. Um, and you know, in turn, there's also just less social engagement, less marriage, less, uh, less family formation. And uh, in some important respects, this has to do with people not feeling confident about jumping into society, not feeling like this is for me, this is the path for my life. It's especially the case with men. Yep. Um, young men feeling like they're just going to stay on the sidelines. 
Um, there's no path for them to get to something that looks like flourishing. And instead, they're going to pass their time. Um, you know, I mean, it's a cliche to say at home playing video games, but it's, at some level, that's what's happening. And um, we have to think about how to get people engaged, how to get people to think about how to flourish, how to get people to take risks, both by shielding them from the worst kind of catastrophes that can come if things go wrong. And there you do need help from public systems that can make sure that if uh, a risk goes wrong, it's not the end for you. Um, but also to help people see the promise of getting involved in family, getting involved in work, getting into the economy, uh, pushing a little bit further to get that one more level of education that can let you rise one more bit in our society. Um, we're not used to thinking about this kind of problem. And I think that in the coming years, when we think about social breakdown, this is much more of what we're going to have to think about, how to help people get started rather than how to restrain people from rushing too fast. Yeah, get, give them a catalyst or reason to get out there um, to aspire to, to the point where you think that a risk aversion has been built up in part by this emphasis on expression um, versus action. Were you yeah. thinking of social media when you yeah. said that? Uh, and I, I'm, are you not on social media? Because if you're not, that makes you smarter than, uh, <laughs> let's say, me. Well, I, I'm not on Twitter. Um, I took a look at Twitter about, must have been 10 years ago or so, and I, and I thought, this is really not for me. And um, I've never looked back. I'm glad I'm not on Twitter. I'm sure I miss important things. But on the other hand, I think Twitter deforms the political culture and larger culture of our society in some really profound ways. I'm barely on social media otherwise. I, I, I have a Facebook account that I used to keep up with my family um, but I don't do anything work-related on it. I don't engage in political debates on social media. Um, I, I think there's a real danger to the ways in which people now use social media. And part of the danger has to do with this kind of confusion of uh, expression with action, the sense that if you just give something a thumbs up or, or you know, click on that heart emoji, then you've done something. You've really stepped up and showed. You've that, really made a difference. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, you've literally done nothing. And so I, I, I think that we, we, we now confuse expression and action in ways that keep us from acting. You really see it in politics where so much of what happens is totally ephemeral. Um, and, you know, even it's about winning like political a, action. not even a daily press cycle. It's about winning like a press half hour. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a second. And sometimes even, you know, you, social media can be used to enable some political action, you know, actually getting out on the street. But that's ephemeral, too. That turns out not to have any structure behind it, any institutions behind it. And so it's not real political power. It hasn't shown the country anything. And, um, you know, part of this is that confusion of expression and action. I also think that there are ways that that social media just encourages us and enables us to live in bubbles to a very, very dangerous degree. I, you know, as I say, I'm on Facebook. I'm, I'm not, I don't engage in political debates on Facebook, but I see them because you can't miss them. And I would say I, because of the peculiar nature of my, of, of my, the, the combination of my demographics and my work, I'm on the one hand, uh, a foreign born Jewish PhD. I grew up in New Jersey and live in Maryland. So I know a lot of people on the left. On the other hand, I'm a conservative. I work in the conservative opinion world, and I know a lot of people on the right. And what you find on Facebook is that these two worlds of friends of mine 
are completely unconnected to each other. They each think that they are angry at the other, but in fact, they are each angry about something that the other has never heard about. Um, they're complaining about things that are entirely part of their own culture, and so is the other side. And they're not engaging with each other. They're not hearing each other. They're not becoming aware of one another's priorities in any way that you would in a real-world debate. And you know that allows the temperature to rise without anything being achieved. Um, the parties simply talk about each other rather than to each other. And I think social media has a huge amount to do with why that can happen. You get asked often to speak on the future of the Republican Party. I'd imagine that you're something of an attractor to, uh, let's say, conservatives and Republicans who have grave concerns about Donald Trump. <laughs> so I, I will share with you my prognosis for what's coming, um, which you know is not nothing that far out. Is that Trump uh, runs for president, uh, wins the Republican nomination, is the Republican nominee. Uh, then is coming down the pike and will challenge, uh, let's say, like a, a Democrat with like a shaky popularity or, or, or a record, whether it's Joe Biden or someone else. Um, and so a lot of people are looking up and saying, well, like what what should uh, the future of the Republican Party be? Uh, you know, are people going to be backing someone that's not Donald Trump? If that person loses to Trump, what then? Um, do you have any thoughts as to what folks who are who think and would like to act like you do, uh, like what their path should be or course of action? Well, I mean, look, I, th I think it's very important for the future of anything like what I consider to be conservatism or the proper character of the Republican Party that Donald Trump not be the party's nominee again. And so working to that end is extremely important for people who have some uh, stake in the future of the American right. And I think there will be people who challenge Trump um, and maybe some strong candidates who challenge Trump. But I think it's, at this point, you'd have to say it's likely that Trump will run. And at this point, he certainly seems like he would be the strongest candidate running. I think he's getting somewhat weaker with time. Uh, you know, the, the, everybody becomes boring eventually. Even the most gifted circus performer can only do the same things for so long. Um, and you see some evidence of that, but I wouldn't exaggerate that. I think Trump still has enormous sway uh, over voters on the right. Um, I, there's a question about whether ultimately Republican voters really are going to want the next election to essentially be about the last election. Um, you know, when Trump ran in 2016, for all that I, that I had intense opposition to him and to his character and to a lot of what he had to say, he was talking about issues that people wanted to talk about. Um, he was talking about a set of things that were actually on the minds of a fair number of Republican voters. At this point, he's talking about his own grudges, and I don't think that gives him the same kind of, of uh, at least inherently, the same kind of power that he had. So I, I think in the first instance, it's important to think about alternatives as alternative futures for the party um, and to see them embodied in particular individuals. I'd encourage people to run, and I think that it's very important to see uh, a future for the party beyond Trump. Um, you know, if that doesn't happen, you know, then I think serious conservatives on the right find themselves in a familiar place like where we were in uh, in 2016 and after. 
And that doesn't give you a lot of options. I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I wouldn't do it now either. Um, but I think that it's extremely important not to find ourselves in that situation again. And all we can do at this point is try to persuade people that it would be crazy for the party to put Donald Trump before the country as, uh, as, as the Republican nominee in a situation where if it's without Trump, I think Republicans have a very, very strong chance of winning in 2024. But Trump is not popular. He's never really been that popular. And with him, I don't think Republicans have nearly that chance. And I don't think they would deserve it. So, you know, all I can do is make that case. You talk about how the folks in your Facebook feed are talking about different things, uh, you know, ginning uh, themselves up. (laughs) Do you have a sense as to how we might be able to declare a truce in the culture war? I mean, uh, there are times when I I say I consider saying things like no one wins a culture war. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, I want the forward party to be something of a bridge builder. Uh, and we are attracting people that uh, I joke, uh, you've all where we're like attracting a tribe of people that are more allergic to tribalism, <laughs> you know, because, because if you really like tribal appeals, you're like, you know, uh, yeah. like, uh, heading toward the sides. Um, do you have any ideas as to how we could potentially bring people together and, and declare a truce? You know, in a funny way, my hopefulness is rooted in my sense of how bad things are. Um, I think that that a lot of Americans are very unhappy with the state of our culture and our political culture. And, you know, there are very few people you could find who would just say, things are going great in America. Let's just keep doing this. Um, that's a start. That's a place to start to say, this can't be what we keep doing. Now, I think that in an odd way, our two political parties, our two major political parties are stuck in this rut precisely because we've now lived through an entire generation of extremely close elections. Um, You know, the parties learn from losing big and winning big. And that means that neither party has learned anything in a very long time because neither of them has lost big or won big since the 1990s. Um, every election's close. Every election, it seems like everything is uh, on the line. Uh, you know, the, the control of Congress has swung back and forth more swiftly than ever in American history. Um, we have, in a sense, two minority parties now, um, and a politics without winners. Everybody loses all the time. You would think the parties would be very unhappy with that, but they actually feel like they're on the verge of winning all the time. And their sense is, let's just do that again, but get our people out a little better, and then we win. Um, I, I think, ironically, that the first party to really grasp that it isn't winning, that it is, what it's doing is not working, will be the party that's in a position to own the future. Um, because ultimately, a realignment that, in, that, that creates a durable majority in America has to begin from a sense that what parties are offering now is not appealing to the public. Um, and I think there is room for other institutions um, to advance that case in such a way that the two parties are going to hear it. We have a two-party system. It's going to be very hard to break that. Essentially impossible. I mean, the character of our electoral system is such... Difficult, that but I think, not impossible, but continue, continue. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think that what a third party ought to hope for is that it can, that the best of itself can be integrated into one or both of the other parties. Um, and w- w- when we've seen that kind of thing happen it, it is when you've seen real political change um, in, in American life. When, w- when the Whigs or the progressives became parts of the other parties, 
is when they enabled uh, real transformation and, and ultimately realignments. And so I, I think there is room to see our way out of the, the kind of um, intense deadlock that we've been in for a long time now, where neither side has a durable majority. It's important to see that's unusual in American history. At almost any time in our history, if you looked at the situation in our politics, there was what political scientists call a sun party and a moon party, a, um, a durable majority and a long-term minority that has influence in the way that a minority does. The parties have switched roles, but there's usually been a majority and a minority. It, it, think about the 20th century real quick. R Republicans won almost every presidential election between 1896 and 1928. Democrats then won five presidential elections in a row. Um, and then after that, you had a situation where Republicans were winning presidential elections and Democrats ran Congress for 40 years. And then, starting in the 1990s, we've had this weird situation. It's important not to take this for granted. This isn't how our politics has to work. Um, but to see our way out of it, we've got to recognize that it isn't working. And I think the kind of work you're doing, which helps people see that it doesn't have to be like this, that there are other ways of thinking about what politics is for, is tremendously important in opening a path out of this kind of rut that uh, the, the, the two big parties are in. I believe that we'd be much better served if the Democratic Party were two parties, the Republican Party were two parties, uh, and then there would be a natural home for people like you, frankly, that, <laughs> that aren't, uh, aren't Trump fans. I see uh, reasonable, well-intended uh, Republicans and conservatives as the key pivot group uh, in American life right now, personally. Um, and I don't think we've been doing enough for the Peter Myers, the Adam Kinzingers, the Liz Cheneys who have acted on principle. And, and a lot of it's because the folks on the left, like Democrats, you know, there's an R next to their name. So it's like, well, you're on your own. And then, <laughs> then if you're a re Republican, you know, like your interests aren't very well served. I mean, it, it really does not strike me as uh, as the way to go. Because, uh, like, to me, that's the the key group, uh, you know, like the key group that can enable a Republican control to risk uh, to um, arrest its decline into like the thrall of Trump. Um, so uh, it, that so that that's at least my point of view on it is that if you could break it up into, um, you know, four parties instead of two or ideally five parties, uh, that then you'd be in better shape. Uh, you've all, you're such a, a, like a reasonable human being. If someone wants to keep up with you, your writings, you're clearly not on Twitter, which is one of the things that I'm sure is keeping you reasonable. <laughs> how, how, do, <laughs> um, how, how do people keep up with your work? Yeah, thank you very much. I, I, I'm not on Twitter, but you can always find me uh, at the American Enterprise Institute where I work. So AEI.org. Um, and you can look me up there and everything I write is available right there for you. Look at that. Uh, also, he made some fans for AEI.org. Absolutely. Try AEI.org. I, I also run a, a quarterly policy journal called National Affairs, which you can find at nationalaffairs.com. Um, and that's not my own writing mostly, but it's really worth your while. Um, it's a place for people to think out loud uh, and in some depth about public policy questions and the kind of conversation like we've been having here. So uh, I think your listeners would like it. That's one thing I really like about you too, is that um, you actually have very detailed policy prescriptions uh, and a vision. Uh, and people have described you as one of the foremost thinkers uh, on 
um, the conservative side because you you actually are not saying look like get rid of government get rid of this get rid of that like you know like you, you actually have genuine suggestions uh, most all of which I agree with in terms of congressional mm-hmm. modernization and other things um, so thank you really well, thank you I appreciate that very much. Mm-hmm.